Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Elixir Sense and Elixir LS is going to gain some insight for Ecto. That's really exciting. I mess with that all the time, and I would love to have some uh, editor help when I'm writing Ecto queries and schemas. So Marla Sarieva uh, tweeted uh, some screenshots of some new stuff that he's working on to help out uh, Elixir Sense, which is an engine uh, that Elixir LS also uses. When introspecting on your code, it can provide some insights and, and it provides things like autocomplete um, variables that you've used in the code. Uh, and so this new feature uh, is introspecting more on Ecto, and it's more context-aware uh, of, of Ecto things. So when writing queries and schemas, it'll present the options for fields and query options in the autocomplete. So that's pretty nice. Um, also exciting about this work is that, uh, quoting him, he says that 80% of the work is to allow library authors to add their own context-aware suggestions for autocomplete. So even though right now this is just about Ecto, it doesn't have to be. So that's really nice. Uh, I can imagine a lots of... Uh, Lots of helpful things being written uh, in the future for things like GraphQL, for example, um, uh, for Absinthe, uh, and then also other, other libraries. So that's exciting work. So that's really cool. Another item is following up from a previous discussion or news item we had was about Jose Valim's post on homemade analytics. So Jose posted on Twitter about Plausible IO, which is a, a company, a Plausible HQ, and they have published a hex package, which is open source and Elixir. And Plausible Analytics is a standard Elixir Phoenix application backed by Postgres SQL database for general data and ClickHouse database for stats, which they've all packaged up nicely into a Docker container. And on the front end, they use Tailwind CSS for styling and React to make the dashboard interactive. And what's interesting about this is it's open source and you can run it yourself or you can use their hosted solution. It sounds like something interesting to look at if you're wanting some analytics in your app and you didn't want to use Google. Elixir Conf EU videos are now available for purchase. If you didn't purchase the ticket originally, you can now buy them. They are about 38 euros. That translates roughly to 45 US dollars. So go check those out if you're interested. Elixir Conf US 2020, they officially answered some questions about access to the talks. So attendees who purchased the tickets and to attend the virtual conference, will be able to watch the talks live and join talks in progression and watch the recorded ones soon after the talk is complete. However, if you don't buy a ticket, the videos will not be available immediately. So the keynotes will be publicly published after the conference, but access to the talks may be purchased after the conference by non-ticket holders. And at some point, all the videos will be publicly available. You can check out more in the show notes. That's it for the news. Today, we just wanted to be able to kind of get together and talk about some of the cool stuff. Because uh, like when we're getting ready to do an episode, we always have these discussions about cool things that we're learning and seeing and, and playing with. And sometimes that's just kind of fun to share. Uh, because, you know, I know you, uh, dear listener, you might be sitting there and you're like, hey, I'm learning Elixir. I'm playing with it. And there's not very many people around me in my circle, or even if there were I can't physically get out there and, and hang out and talk with them. So sometimes it's just fun to hear what other people are doing. And so we wanted to kind of jump in with some of that. And we'd love to hear what you are doing. So you can always answer some of these kinds of questions and follow along and just let us know at Thinking Elixir on Twitter. So one of the interesting things that we saw kind of discussed recently 
uh, it's not really a current news item, so we didn't put it in the news section. But it was about uh, New Bank and their acquisition, their aqua hire of Platforma Tech. So, David, do you want to kind of introduce what you were seeing with this? Yeah, uh, the, the company New Bank, um, which again is the company that aqua hired Platforma Tech. They, they also just recently aqua hired or acquired uh, Cognitech, um, which, if you don't know what Cognitech is, uh, they're actually based in Durham, which is right around the corner for me. I'm, I, I live in Durham, by the way. So it's kind of interesting. It's local news for me, too. Uh, but Cognitech is a company uh, that included the founders behind Clojure. So it's 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 interesting. I mean, I mean, Nubank uses Clojure uh, way more than Elixir. I, I'm not even sure they even use Elixir. So they definitely use Clojure, though. Uh, so this acquire makes a lot of sense, right? Grab a lot of developer talent that knows a lot about the language that they're primarily developing in. So it's interesting to see, you know, this Brazilian company, one that I've never heard of before, uh, these acquires, is going after developer talent, you know, um, this this way that these companies that basically back these languages that were founded like Elixir and Clojure. Uh, so in case if, if you haven't heard of Nubank like me before uh, all this news, uh, Nubank, very simply, I'll, I'll just summarize here and I'll, I might get some of that wrong, but Nubank is a Brazilian company um, that focuses on uh, as, as you can probably guess from their name, uh, banking solutions. Uh, so uh, it seems to be a problem in Brazil where there's a lot of high interest rates. And so New Bank is applying technology solutions to decrease the rates um, for uh, folks like you and me, right? Uh, everyday consumers. So New Bank is, yeah, a technology-focused company um, creating products in the finance world. So online bank accounts, credit cards, uh, loans, that kind of stuff. One of the things I thought was really interesting about that whole discussion, uh, so like Jose was recently on the Changelog uh, podcast, and he was interviewed about this aqua hire. It kind of came out that uh, Newbake really loved the talent and the processes and procedures that Platform Tech uh, employed. You know, in terms of how to run a project, how to uh, how to structure things, not necessarily so much about specifically Elixir code. And so they wanted people who already knew how to do this, how to run projects like this, how to develop, you know, have teams that are remote and, and be successful. And in the d- discussion about Jose optionally, you know, what if he had gone along with Nubank and they wanted to do closure? You know, he said, I loved how he described it. He's like, it will, it'd be like hiring a soccer star to play basketball. You know, it's like you're saying, you know, the creator of the Elixir language and and you're super good at this sport and this thing. And we're asking you to like, just play this other game. It's like, well, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. So, <laughs> you know, I just think it was, it was a fun way to do it. And that kind of uh, started off a whole discussion around, you know, career development and choosing, uh, you know, different opportunities that present themselves. You know, do I want to continue with this technology or that technology? Just for some uh, insight, like I was living in Alabama at the time. And I really wanted to get into Ruby, and that, there just wasn't any Ruby. It was a Microsoft town, right? Like Birmingham area was just like everything Microsoft at the time. So I started, you know, kept broadening out like where I was considering moving because like I really wanted to work with different technology and I needed to physically locate somewhere else because people wanted you to be physically there. So that's another topic that we can talk about after that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so I end up moving to Utah because there was a ton of really cool stuff going on out here around Ruby and just a lot of uh, high tech. They kind of call it Silicon Slopes because there's just a lot of uh, startups and it's a really cool kind of tech scene there. 
But, you know, it's like choosing the tech was in a, such an, an important thing to me that I moved my whole family for it, you know, because it's something that I saw as a career direction as well. So like, there's just, it's, there's a lot of things that kind of go into our decisions like that. So I don't know, I'm curious about you guys and kind of some of your, the way you make those decisions, like, you know, in terms of, you know, career, making a career decision to start with Elixir, you know, it's like, you know, anything you guys want to share? Yeah, I, I, I started working um, pretty early on with Ruby and Rails exclusively. And uh, I was still learning it. I was still a new developer, junior developer. And um, I saw a job post open up. I, I live in the Raleigh-Durham triangle, research triangle area. And so that was a good place to move for for technology kind of jobs. And ironically enough, I didn't actually move here, move here for for a technology job. Um, I moved here for an operations job. But I, I ended up loving it because of the exposure that I got to uh, software and technology jobs that are out here. So anyway, I started working as a developer um, in in Rails at a small uh, consultancy shop, and uh, pretty early on, I saw another job open uh, in this in the same city uh, for Elixir, um, and I was way too early to like jump to jump ship. You know, like I I probably should have stuck around that job and so continued to learn and you know craft craft my knowledge around Ruby and Rails and general software development practices and architectural design that kind of stuff. But I I had been playing with Elixir. Uh, I was introduced to it and I saw that job post open up and I was like, you know what? I'll just give it a shot. I'll, I'll go ahead and apply. It's a little bit more of a drive, but I'll I'll do it. Uh, and, and it surprised me because I got the job. I was really surprised. I did not expect that in any way. Um, and since then I'd been doing, uh, almost a hundred percent Elixir. I mean, the job roles have been a hundred percent Elixir, but you know, every, every once in a while you got to dip into some other code. So yeah, it was kind of interesting, you know, for me to, to, to make that kind of decision. Like I, I probably should not have applied for that, you know, like <laughs> career development wise to, to jump so early, but I guess in in that case, it really worked out for me. Yeah. It's hard to know what to do career wise. There's so many languages and technologies out there. Every time I learn a new language, I feel like I get a lot of insight into other languages and I'd learn how more of the world works. So I don't think there's any downside to taking a risk and learning something. Worst case, it doesn't work out. You've learned some new techniques and new ways to think about things and you move on with your life. But I don't remember how I, I got into, I haven't been doing Elixir for too long. I don't know why I got into it. I just learned a little bit about it and I seemed to like it and an opportunity showed up and I just went for it and ended up really loving Elixir. Something I've been thinking about um, for career development stuff lately is with software, I think software uh, and technology kind of, might be different from other job industries where like loyalty to your company is more or less important than others. You know, like the generation prior to us, it was much more common to stay at your company for 20 some odd years and have that pension and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the climate around that is, has changed uh, a lot since then. And I, I wonder if the technology industry, you know, changed sooner than the others. And it was more common for developers to jump jobs, you know, for various reasons. Maybe it was friendlier to remote work first. Um, and so it allowed, it allowed developers to, you know, move around a little bit more often. One of the things I remember when I was living in Birmingham, which was like a Microsoft town at the time, right? I think from talking with some of my friends who are still there, it's like, it sounds like it still is primarily, 
But like one of the things I, I observed was people's fear of making, of looking at other tech, right? Because Microsoft had this pattern of always having new tech coming out, right? And it's like, you know, uh, XAML forms and, you know, all these different things. They're always generating. And so it's like, it's a tech treadmill. And you always had to be up on the latest thing because some, the next job you wanted, they're going to say, we want someone who has five years of experience in this thing. It's only been around for four years, but you know, <laughs> you've, but you've, uh, you've got to be, have, have been on from the beginning, right? Like, so they had this fear of trying anything that was not on their, the treadmill of what they were like seeing. And so yeah. that was really frustrating just because, you know, like it was getting, getting people to say, Hey, you know, get, as a version control, version management is really good solution, but it Microsoft wasn't doing Git, you know. So like, oh no, we we, we won't do that because it's not yeah. Microsoft. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of value for the individual person out there to play with things that are just completely off their normal stuff, you know. Just to like you're talking about, like getting exposure to different ideas, right? Like you're doing OO. Hey, you're listening to a, a, a podcast where we talk about functional language of Elixir, right? Like play with Elixir, right? Like functional languages, you learn different ways of solving problems. So it just opens up your mind to new ideas. One of the things I've learned, I guess, with the career path that I've, you know, it wasn't a plotted out, you know, planned entirely. It's just kind of meandered around as I, as events and circumstances changed. But one of the things I learned is to be open to different opportunities and to realize and I've just seen the patterns like languages rise they gain popularity and then something overtakes it and that just happens so you know I know people who they identify as a java developer right and so they won't do anything that's not java because they are a java developer as opposed to a developer who solves problems maybe in a particular industry or, or sphere right so it's I don't know. It's just like that whole mindset, I think, is uh, something to watch out for to kind of catch in yourself. Yeah, but let's apply that to like Jose, though. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe different when you create a language, but, you know, we just talked about in Changelog, you know, the Changelog interview, you know, that they would that would be like hiring him to play basketball, a soccer star to play basketball. That just wouldn't be right. But at the same time, he was he was a Ruby developer before. Yeah, that's right? yeah, very true. Yeah, and so it, it was that whole. I mean, he read um, seven languages in seven weeks. So okay, so maybe I'm missing the point then. Maybe maybe the point is it, it's it is a choice, you, you know. But uh, make sure that you're you're not limiting yourself. I don't know. I just think it's an interesting idea when you think about people, you know, making career decisions, and you know, when you talk to people who are senior and you kind of learn their roundabout way i know people who have gone through computer science degrees i know like i changed majors i did management information systems so it ended up being minored in computer science and and got uh you know more business and uh, accounting and things like that which have served me well and i know people who've come out of you know code camps and you know it's like we're all coming from these different paths yeah there is no like one true way of like this is your career path so change of topic a little bit is just kind of the idea that this whole um, COVID era, one of, you know, it's been really hard for a lot of people and, you know, it's been challenging for different companies and industries and 
families. But one of the benefits I've seen coming out of this is uh, that remote work has become such more of a accepted idea. And I think that, you know, where I had to move across the country to get physically located where people would be willing to hire me, now that I think that option has opened up a lot more where you can live somewhere that's where the, you know, property values are much cheaper and be able to work for a company that's, you know, on, on a coast, you know, somewhere where it otherwise be really expensive. But don't most of those companies adjust your pay based on your cost of living anyways? I don't know. I haven't worked for one of them. So that's a good question. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't like solve the problem. <laughs> I know that there's some companies that, yeah, make that decision, but there's others um, like Basecamp. They, you know, they, 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 they talk about that a lot. They say everybody gets the San Francisco scale pay, um, even though they're completely remote. Wow. So yeah, if you can find one of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let good. me know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think Facebook got some flack because they had said that yeah, if if you were living in Silicon Valley but now you're doing remote work because of all the, you know, all the stuff that's happening and you move away, like that's that's cool. That's that's your choice, but that you might get lower <laughs> a lower pay pay scale for that. Um and so I I know that like culturally speaking, that's probably a bad move <laughs> at this point. Um but uh I know that, that the realities of business might be uh might be different, but yeah, that that reason for the, the different pay scale with remote work, um, that doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, anymore. So I wonder how companies will evolve with that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because if that trend continues, like imagine a company going full remote, it now opens up the whole world mm -hmm. as a talent pool, right? And people in other countries make different salaries. And if you were to continue to adjust based on where you live, all of a sudden, you have these people who are living in richer areas in America that are demanding, you know, double of what these other places might be demanding. <laughs> where are you going to hire that, from? Well, that does, I think it, it, it actually works out the other way, though. Like, even though, like, Europe has a pretty nice living standard, um, developer salaries over there are actually lower than the U.S. The U.S. is among the highest uh, uh, developer salary ranges, uh, probably dictated a lot by Silicon Valley. Um, yeah, but you're also like getting into like the, the, the conversation about like offshoring, uh, and that's been something that's happened for, you know, quite a while. And, they, and, and usually the reason for that is, is money. Um, it is, so I guess just bringing that up, you know, like it's remote works, obviously impossible. People have been doing it, you know, for a long time. Um, but they've maybe had different terms for it <laughs> and, yeah, true. and, um, yeah, it's interesting, um, to, to, I love remote work, by the way. Like this, this has been a really great positive change for, for me in my life. Um, but yeah, how that affects the salary is, is going to be interesting uh, for us based folks at least. Yeah. Well, salary aside, assuming it's, you know, assuming you can find something that meets your needs that you need for you and your family or whatever your situation. I do just like the idea that now I can, I have more opportunities available that aren't physically where I live. And just yeah. the idea that, you know, I can work with the team. And I think there is something to be said for, you know, maintaining somewhat of like a, you know, time zone overlap kind of thing. It's like that people can have, you know, on reasonable hours, be able to meet together and, and, and pair and coordinate and do things like that. You know, that might still put some restrictions on what's, what options you would actually consider. 
Yeah, I think it definitely lowers the bar because there's a lot of places that I've always just crossed off the list of potential possibilities because the location didn't, I didn't enjoy the location, didn't have any intentions of ever moving there. So opens up a lot of possibilities, lowers the bar of entry, you know, moving your whole family across country is a lot of work. It may also like, uh, it it may fight some preconceptions you have about areas. Like I I always think of Seattle as the home of Microsoft and AWS. And if I wasn't interested in working at AWS or Microsoft, I would just not move to Seattle, but that ignores all the other companies that are in that area. So like, it's just a, just something you have to fight against with this remote work you know, being more common. Um, I think, uh, any company, you know, gets the exposure, um, uh, that they, they might deserve. Um, that also opens up, um, and I, this ties back to what you were talking about before, Mark is, you know, exploring these different languages, um, that are out there. And so I, I, I by chance got a job in Elixir and loved it. And, you know, but finding an Elixir job here locally in Durham, not as common, uh, and it's probably the same story in, in your city. So with this remote work being more common, getting Elixir jobs might be a little bit easier and doesn't require you to to move. Uh, and why I bring that up is because uh, I think getting getting a job in the language that you really enjoy is probably more likely with uh, with remote work. And so that always gets thumbs ups for me is like you were saying about um Birmingham a little while ago, that was a Microsoft town. So if you didn't do the Microsoft things, you probably weren't as easily to, uh, able to get a job, which, you know, is unfortunate. Maybe now we can switch topics. And oftentimes people ask questions just like, you know, when you're coming new to uh, an environment, like a, a culture or like a, you know, the Elixir space, you know, they might ask like, what editor do you use? What does your dev environment look like? People are just trying to like figure out like, you know, how can I improve my setup? So I'd just be curious to like, I don't know, we ever really talked about, you know, how you guys choose to set up your machines, what kind of machines, uh, anything like that. Mark, do you use Visual Studio uh, code? Yeah. So yeah, so I started off doing Elixir development with Adam. And then the GitHub purchase happened. And, you know, I was kind of like, I didn't want to do Visual Studio code, because I still had a lot of you know, emotional, mental baggage against Microsoft. <laughs> I used to be a Microsoft developer. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, and, and so like anything with visual studio attached to it, I was like, <laughs> I didn't want to touch it. <laughs> so so it took me a while to actually get over that and like realize, okay, it's open source. And I just had to kind of see the, the, the track record of it and I became comfortable yeah. with it. And, you know, it's a really good tool. There's a lot of engineering that has gone into it. So right now, yeah, I'm using v, uh, VS Code. Yeah, it's, it's funny how, how languages kind of come with that that baggage. Like, yeah, Android Studio, you, you're you definitely going to, uh, or Android development, you're going to be using something like Android Studio, which is based on Eclipse. So you have like a full-on IDE around that to support your development workflow. But those IDEs can be really overwhelming. <laughs> uh, like, I don't know what, the, so what's going on. What am I, what am I supposed to be doing here? And, and it's for those reasons that I really enjoyed Vim is because it's very stripped down. It's very focused on just text editing. But there's a lot of features that like, yeah, these IDEs and VS Code has now that, you know, make me jealous. And and one of those uh, features for a long while was um, was language server integration. But Vim has since caught up with the help of some plugins. And so I, I've actually written a couple of blog posts about about how to get your Vim set up with uh, Elixir LS and testing workflows, which are really important to me. And uh, so we can we can link to those later if you guys are interested. But 
Yeah, the Vim was really interesting to me and, and really stripped down, very fast, very responsive. And those qualities about it were really, um, really important to me. I didn't like the, the big bogged down nature of IDEs, at least the impression that it gave me. Um, even, you know, even though that they had like a lot of power behind them. Yeah, I wanted to get into Vim for the longest time. And I tried a couple of times and just failed over and over trying to get into it because there's, you know, there's a lot of like upfront costs sometimes depending how you come at it. One time my hand started hurting and I, and at the same time I had a friend who was really into Vim and he, he was like, oh, I got to give you my Vim config. I'll set it up for you. He kind of did all the upfront work for me. And between that and like the motivation I had because my hands were kind of hurting, I got super into Vim really enjoyed it and like fixed the pain I had in my hands. It wasn't too bad. It was nothing too critical. After that, I just loved it. I got super into it. And I was doing mostly JavaScript at the time and React. Um, but when I moved over to Elixir, just the people I worked with were using VS Code. So I used VS Code. And then since I've been in Vim, every time I'm using VS Code, there's just always things that bother me. Like it doesn't <laughs> focus the window that I think it should focus. Like when I hit enter, it doesn't do the thing that I expect it should do. Like when I'm typing, something's always popping up. And like when I hit enter or I hit tab or I hit, I have, I feel like I have to hit escape so often that I might as well be in Vim anyways to get out <laughs> of all these autocompletes that VS Code is popping up for me. <laughs> So to answer your question, I'm in VS Code right now, but I've been tempted lately, especially since the guy we interviewed last week brought up, or he had some blog posts that I was looking into. He's written a lot about Vim, and now David has some blog posts about Vim. So I don't know. I might just jump back into Vim sometime soon. So Cade, you'd mentioned a uh, a resource that was like a, a game for learning the Vim key bindings. Oh yeah, Vim Adventure. I mean... Yeah, it's like a short little game. Yeah, I think you have to pay for it to go much past level one, but it's kind of fun to do. We can drop a link in the show notes. I want to say there's a zombie one too. Um, there's some free free Vim ones out there as yeah. well. Some other interesting things about these editing environments, though, are like it's it's sometimes it's not just about the language itself. You know, you, you have these other tools that you have to run to support your application, things like Redis or a database or something like that. What do you guys use to to manage that kind of stuff? I work on a, a system where we have a number of different services and, you know, you have to start up all the services to have a full functioning system. I don't know that you necessarily call them mark, microservices, but some of, the, they're very, some of them are very small focused on one thing, but they're not necessarily tiny. So it's a series of services. And one of the things I found really helpful was using Docker because of legacy reasons. We have MySQL and Postgres and Redis. And, you know, bring those up and, you know, kind of manage that. Uh, So one of the things I like about using Docker for managing my databases is it's easier to be very specific about the version of the database I want to use. Because my my machine, I run Arch Linux. And Arch Linux is always moving. It's just a a rolling distro. Yeah. And and so that means I'm going to get my, you know, the OS level my uh, Postgres database is going to be updated as soon as the new Postgres database comes out. But that's not the one I'm using in production. And, you know, it's like I use Docker containers to like say, this is the one I want to use. I'm pretty similar uh, in there, though I have a couple of things that are globally installed, but it's it's bitten me in the past. <laughs> so yeah, I, I usually have a globally installed Redis 
That's never really bitten me, so I, I've been fine with that. Yeah, that API is pretty stable. Yeah, uh, but but databases. Yeah, on my work computer, I have the work version. You know, the, the older version of Postgres installed. But on other projects, I have newer versions, and th- thankfully, it hasn't been too too common of an issue for me. But I, I've uh, in some recent projects, I've been sticking them in a, into Docker containers now, uh, and then starting those up and and Docker Compose really to make it easy. So I just I just do Docker p- Compose up, and then and and then it's you know it's ready and accepting connections, and it sets up a pattern for adding other services like RabbitMQ or, or heck, you can do Redis that way too if you wanted to. So it's it's easier to drop in services and the developer experience for other de- developers to get up and run in. Not in Docker though, uh, and, and more about the language, I use ASDF. I think that's pretty common for Elixir developers, but um, I know some uh, some of them, some folks out there use Brew to switch between versions, which is pretty nice too. I haven't worked in that way, but ASDF seems to be a, pre- a pretty well accepted tool for managing Elixir versions. Um, so so that's a that's a tool to to work, look into. I, I'm curious. Um, since Docker, you know, both you and I, Mark, use it. How does that work? And you use VS Code. How does that work with VS Code? It, don't they have some helpers in there to, you know, develop inside of Docker? Do you use that? You know, that's a good question. I have seen that there is something. I've just never actually gone in that direction. I just yeah. wrote like a script. Like, because, yeah, I think the Docker Compose, especially like with our uh, multiple services, because there are certain services that you don't really touch very often. You know, they're yeah. very focused, very, so we just kind of, but they might be needed for a whole system. So I use Docker Compose to bring it all up and I just kind of have a script for that and I don't really, yeah, so I haven't, I haven't looked into using VS Code to do any of that Docker integration. That's a good question. Wait, so you, are you saying that you develop inside of Docker? I do not. I, I don't. I just know that okay. there's a, that, that there's solutions for that. Like if your code base was inside a Docker thing, you know, as well, and to run your application's main web server, for example, it would be running inside of Docker. Um, hmm. And VS Code has some integration hooks now to like manage that process. But again, I'm a Vim user, so I, <laughs> I don't know what that really looks like, but it seems like one of those cool features that could be really helpful for like large companies that, yeah, like where you need to, you need to spin up like five different application servers to get, to get a certain flow to complete, you know, yeah. um, so it could be interesting there. But yeah, I did want to mention uh, with ASDF, I think it is a, a great tool and it has a lot of different plugins. We've talked about it before, I think. It can manage versions of not just Elixir and Erlang. It can also do Ruby and Node and other things. Uh, I actually it do, does some. There's some third-party plugin support for doing like kubectl for Kubernetes. You know, so it's like there's lots of options there. And you know, that's one of the challenges of coming new to just development in general is like you know we're sitting here throwing out these terms like oh yeah Docker and database and ASDF. It's like there's a lot there, really. It's like, you know, you yeah. kind of don't think about it when you've accumulated all that knowledge over years, but there's a lot there. Uh, so just, I want to men- make sure that you, dear listeners, are, are aware that I do have a resource. If you're coming new to Elixir and you're new to ASDF in particular, um, I have a, a blog article I'm going to include in the show notes on using, installing Elixir and using ASDF to manage that and how how to actually walk you through that. But I guess the barrier to entry, just, you know, like ASDF is a good tool, but if you literally just wanted to like get into an Elixir terminal and just start yes. running stuff, like if you're on a Mac, like just brew install Elixir and be done, you know, play yes. with it. 
And then, it, you know, a little bit later, once you start getting, if you, you know, are doing Elixir a little bit more often or downloading projects, you know, that use Elixir, then, then something like ASDF might be good to help manage those different versions of Elixir. And then you can go from there. Brew, uninstall Elixir before you do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> but, totally agree with that, though. Yeah. Like, I remember going to yeah. a very early um, Elixir meetup and it was like, all right. You know, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to install ASDF. And I'm like, uh, it's like 30 <laughs> minutes later. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I just kind of want to get excited about the language, right? Yeah. Like, don't do that. Don't make it all heavy. You know, like just let people just jump in. So yeah, yeah. don't, don't get overburdened with all the tooling that you could do. Yeah. Just get started. <laughs> That's one reason I like this tool called Kitematic. I know on OSX it comes when you install Docker. And I, I imagine that it's cross-platform, but I'm not actually sure. But it basically just has this UI where it has all these images in Docker. And like before I used Postgres at work and I was interested in trying it out, I could just go in here and click create on this little Postgres tile and I'm done. Like I don't have to yeah. configure it. I don't have to do anything. You know, it's got like just on this front page, it's just got all of these really popular things databases jenkins is on here you know elasticsearch RabbitMQ, memcache like you click create it links it to the port that's usually default unless you're using it already and you're you're done you can connect to it and play with it so kitematic is is made by docker yeah that's what it says so it's pretty official then <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty nice that they have that good interface so that's on mac os 10 and windows ah <sighs> And if you're on Linux, good luck. If you're on Linux, you probably don't need it because, <laughs> because you, yeah, You've, I don't know. You probably compiled your own kernel anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. That I, I don't know. That always bothered me when people would like tease me about Linux. Like, oh, oh you have to compile your own kernel. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but, but it's just like those, I don't know, misconceptions. I've been using Linux for many years. I just, I've, I've really enjoyed it. But that's yeah, that's separate from Elixir. Well, one day there's going to be a tool that's on Linux that everyone else is going to be jealous of. I don't know what that tool is going to be, but <laughs> it's going to happen one day. I, I, I for sure, it's called Linux because <laughs> they actually deploy it everywhere, right? Like your servers are running Linux, your IoT devices are probably Linux, and I, I guess you're right. I guess Windows is even jealous of it, so they they started building it themselves. <laughs> yeah, build it in. <laughs> Closing thought for me, uh, I, I, we talked about career development. We talked about like environment, um, setup stuff, but uh, circling back around to like career development, I think it's really important to just do what you enjoy doing. You know, life is for a living, um, and enjoying. So if you if you feel like that, you, you know, are doing something that you don't enjoy, I would recommend that you look for anything, you know, that you do enjoy and start, you know, working your way towards, um, working your way towards like getting a job and doing what you love. Um, for me that, you know, I found a lot of enjoyment in Elixir. So today I call myself an Elixir developer. I don't see that changing anytime soon because I continue to enjoy it. I, I don't experience that fatigue yet. Um, you know, but we had talked about, uh, you know, uh, that software development evolves quickly and, um, and, and it's, and it's okay to explore other languages because you might find that you, you know, that you really also enjoy a different language, maybe even more than Elixir, which is totally cool. You might fall in love with Kotlin or, or Dart, 
Um, and so you, you got to experience those. So just like trying new food, you know, going to that new restaurant, um, it's okay to, to check out exorcism, you know, dot IO to try some, uh, some mental gymnastics in a new language and see if you enjoy that or not. Um, because you know what, in five years you might have a career in it, uh, which would be really cool, right? Cause you really enjoy it. So again, in, in a, in a sentence, you know, just, just make sure you're doing what you love and, and don't. Don't be limited to, you know, what the the market tells you necessarily or try not to be at least. My take home point for you, I guess, would be in talking about career development. I totally agree with what David said. Um, do something that actually captures your interest. You know, I've, I've seen people go after development careers because they heard that was a good career to do, but not necessarily because they something they enjoyed. You have to you have to really enjoy development, right? Because it's like, it's a process of continually learning. It's not like I can be, I can learn it, be certified, and I'm just good. I, I just go. It's a, it's a continual thing. Uh, and there's another quote that I've heard that I really like, which is, don't want what you don't want. And what that means is, you know, you kind of need to talk to people who are going in a direction, who are further down the road in the direction you're thinking about. Like, maybe it's management uh, you're thinking about. That is a career path. Maybe it's um, someone who's a startup, uh, running a startup, you know, so you, you go and talk to these people, find out what is your life like? What is your day to day like? And then find out, is that what you want? You know, cause if you find out like, wow, the startup thing, it's exciting, but there's this whole other aspect that would just be terrible for me because there's like a, a level of stress and anxiety because other people's mortgages are depending on me. And you know, that kind of idea, if that's something you're like, no, I don't want that. Then don't want what you don't want. So you got to like find mentors in the direction, like the career path that you're thinking about going in, just find out what it's like and see if that is something you actually want. And then just on our, to cap off our discussion on uh, dev environments, don't get bogged down in having like the perfect thing. You know, we were joking about like the idea that, you know, like, oh, I can be productive or I can tinker with my, you know, my dev environment. You know, really, it's about we want to solve problems. And I don't want the problem that I'm always solving is be something with my dev environment. So like, just get something that works, just get going, and then adjust it as you go. It's like, don't bring Docker in if you don't need Docker. Just get going and have fun with it. Yeah, I've always said that I'm really lucky to have gotten a career in programming because it's something that I enjoy doing. And it's because I enjoy doing it, I feel like I happen to be good at it. And it happens to be a very flexible career and a in a well-paying career. And I'm just lucky that all of those stars aligned how they did for me. So, you know, if it's something that you enjoy doing good for you, you know, you'll have fun doing it. And like, if you love what you do, it's, it's sometimes it's easy to call work, not work because you're just having fun doing it. You're enjoying what you're doing. You're enjoying the people you're working with. So that's kind of my takeaway too. It's like, just do something that you love. It's less of work when you love doing it. Well, thank you for joining us as we just kind of discussed different things and, and thoughts that we have and observations. And that's all the time we have for today. Hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.